The idea is to clear out a one kilometer deep area along the border between Gaza and Israel. This is something that Israel informed its Western allies way back in December. Obviously, if Israel does so and posts its troops there permanently, it would be a violation of international law. So Israel has never admitted to those plans. I'm Roland Oliphant, and this is Battle Lines. Regardless of who stands with Israel, Israel will fight until this battle is won. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. I made wartime decisions. I know the choices are never clear or easy for leadership. I just find bombs and I find dead people, but it's a really scary thing for me. In this episode of Battle Lines, I speak to The Telegraph's Middle East correspondent, Natalia Vasilieva, about the latest updates from the war in Israel and Gaza. Southeast Asia correspondent Sarah Newey tells me about her interview with a Thai farm worker who survived 50 days as a Hamas hostage. David Knowles speaks to Professor Alex DeWool, Executive Director at the World Peace Foundation, about the ongoing war in Sudan. It's Friday, the 2nd of February, 2024. This week, an investigation by The Telegraph shows how Israeli forces appear to be clearing buildings and agricultural land to create a buffer zone inside the Gaza border, something that the Israeli government denies doing. Meanwhile, Talks to release Hamas's remaining hostages have raised hopes of a ceasefire, and Foreign Secretary David Cameron has hinted Britain may recognise a Palestinian state. Natalia, can you bring us up to date? Hi, Roland, and hi, everyone. Again, another busy week in Israel. A lot is going on right now. I would like to start with mediated hostage talks between Hamas and Israel, which looks it looks like they're gaining steam. Talks are expected to resume in Cairo on Thursday. We're expecting to see Hamas leaders in Cairo. There was a proposal that Israel came forward with a while ago. So the idea is if the Hamas representatives at the talks okay the deal, they will have to send it to the leaders in Gaza. And if they sign on it, the deal will go ahead. The details we've heard so far is a longer ceasefire than previously discussed, something between six to even eight weeks and a staged release of Israeli hostages that will start with women and children and will hopefully reach the final hostage. Again, this is a very heated topic in Israel right now. And just to illustrate how fraught the subject of the hostage talks is, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu just on Wednesday night made remarks clearly in in reaction to all of the concern that we're seeing in Israeli society and among uh, government ministers as well. He voiced his government's red lines for the talks. He said that Israel is not agreeing to an end to the war in Gaza. There will be no withdrawal of IDF troops from Gaza and no release of thousands of terrorists, as he described it. Again, Netanyahu is absolutely stuck between a rock and a hard place here. On the one hand, we have over 130 Israeli hostages in Hamas captivity for over 120 days now. Netanyahu has been under increasing pressure from hostages and their families to do something to release them. On the other hand, his right-wing allies have been very vocal about their opposition. If I may, I could also speak about the situation on the ground 
in Gaza right now. Fighting continues, although at a far lower intensity than before. I also came across an interesting report quoting unnamed Israeli officials saying that they believe that up to 60% of Hamas troops and in its elite battalions have been killed so far. So Israel is at least moving towards its goal of eliminating Hamas. So we're definitely seeing less fighting on the ground. There are fewer airstrikes. If you look at the at the number of casualties in Gaza, the overall figure is about 27,000 right now. Obviously, the, the scale of severe civilian suffering is still enormous. The, the houses have been destroyed. Most of the population has been displaced and the infrastructure is just not there. But in terms of the airstrikes and, int- and its intensity, it looks like Israel is wrapping up its most intense stage from where I'm looking at it. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about the, the humanitarian situation or whether there has already been a knock-on effect from the cancellation of funds to UNRWA, the UN agency which supports United Nations refugees? Earlier this week, the the British government, uh, the American government, among others, cut funding to UNRWA following allegations put to them by the Israelis that members of its staff had been involved in the October 7th attacks. Some journalists have now seen these documents that the Israelis have passed to Western governments, which apparently implicate around 12 members uh, of the agency's staff. Has that cancellation of funds already had a knock-on effect uh, on the ground? We've seen very, very loud, very angry protests from humanitarian organizations um, about this who say uh, this is going to have catastrophic consequences for a population that's already basically starving. Yeah, that's a very good question. I would say that I don't think we're likely to see the immediate impact right now, because obviously it takes a lot of time before an organization which loses funding is going to run out of money or will have to economize or look for other sources. We have quite an unexpected obstacle to humanitarian aid right now. Thursday morning, we saw settlers basically laying siege to the port of Ashdod in the south. The settlers tried to block trucks and entering Gaza. Police had to, in- in- to intervene. I think on Wednesday we saw settlers blocking one road, which led to quite an unprecedented decision by the IDF. The IDF basically declared an area around one of the crossings to be a military zone and closed the road for any civilians. So that just shows you what pressure Israeli authorities are under for delivering aid, even though they had been blocking aid for many months since the war started. And another thing I could mention about aid into Gaza is the speculation that has been floating around in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv that some Israeli ministers are actually thinking about doing something to reduce the amount of aid that comes into Gaza as leverage in ongoing talks with Hamas. Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot, one of the most prominent members of Yahoo's government have spoken at closed government meetings that something has to be done to to get some leverage against Hamas in the talks. And they believe that reducing humanitarian aid would be one of those things. Obviously, as you said earlier, we are having talks about a longer ceasefire, about release of hostages, about maybe finally this war beginning to enter an end game, even if we can't actually see the end of it yet. There's a lot of controversy around that and around what the end is actually going to look like. I know you've been looking at the issue of a buffer zone, which has become very pertinent this week. Could you just explain to our listeners what this story is and why is it important? 
Yeah, I, I started working on it last week around the time when we heard about the largest loss of life on the part of the IDF. And when I started looking into those reports, it turned out that all of those soldiers didn't die in a fire battle with Hamas. They didn't die in an operation to rescue Israeli hostages. They died when two buildings that they had slated for demolition collapsed, trapping them inside. They collapsed because apparently there were some Hamas fighters around that fired an RPG on it. But nevertheless, it shed light on what has been rumored for a long time and that has never been admitted by Israeli officials, and which is a buffer zone that Israel is creating inside the Gaza Strip. The idea is to clear out a one kilometer deep area along the border between Gaza and Israel. And uh, this is something that Israel informed its Western allies way back in December. Obviously, if Israel does so and posts its, its, its troops there permanently, it would be a violation of international law. So Israel has never admitted to those plans. When those soldiers were killed, the IDF made a rare announcement saying that praising the soldiers and saying that they were engaged in an important task of providing security for southern Israel so that those people can come back to to live in their homes in southern Israel. So at The Telegraph, we started looking at demolitions and destructions in Gaza. Again, what makes it difficult is the fact that we do not have access to Gaza. You can just go there unless you go with, with an IDF embed. So we started looking at satellite images from recent days to obviously using pre-war images and trying to compare what actually happened on the ground. And when you look closer, you definitely see a pattern of destruction specifically focused on those border areas. Also, we spoke to some academics who've been looking into that. For example, Professor Adi Ben-Nun at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, who estimated that Israel has already demolished about 1,000 out of 2,800 structures located one kilometer or less from the border. And we'll look at four specific segments of the border, starting from the northeastern corner all the way to the south, where you see targeted destructions, you see targeted demolitions. Again, we have no way of saying whether they've been damaged beyond repair or not. It's impossible to tell from satellite images. But there are also things like, you know, we talk about farmlands or we talk about greenhouses and orchards, which obviously are very important for, for Gaza, for its food security. And as you can see clearly on those images, those areas have been raised with bulldozers. So whenever the fighting stops in Gaza, it would be one of the reasons why it would be very hard to bring back life to normal. So let's be clear, the Israeli government has not said that it's clearing a one kilometer strip on the inside, on the Gaza side of the border. But looking at evidence that you've seen, looking at satellite images, you can see a pattern of destruction along a roughly one kilometer strip inside the area that would fit with, with that happening, regardless of what they're saying. Yes, there's definitely a pattern. And if you talk to the IDF, their boilerplate response would be that those buildings have been demolished or that farmland has been raised due to particular military goals. They would say that... They have found Hamas tunnels, entrance to the tunnels in the area, or those buildings have been used by Hamas fighters. 
which again is a very wide definition when you say you know something has been used by a Hamas fighter. I'm not quite sure whether it means that it's enough for a Hamas fighter to enter a building for that to be erased because it's a lot of destruction on the ground. Pointless destruction is not really helping anyone. It's just making it really difficult to bring things back to normal. This feeds into that big question overhanging this whole war, which is kind of what is the outcome going to be and and what are Israel's uh, true intentions? They've been accused of genocide. They've strongly denied it. The, The government has denied the kind of statements by radical members of its own cabinet that would imply the total destruction of Gaza of making it incompatible with continuing life there as it has been before. They, they deny that's what's going on. On the other hand, you see this, you see the destruction of, as you say, infrastructure, farmland, stuff like that, the creation of a buffer zone. And that raises questions about, okay, if there is going to be some kind of Palestinian authority in mm. Gaza at the end of this, what's it going to look like? If there is going to be a Palestinian state, and I'd be interested in your take on uh, the comments by both the Americans and the Brits that are now looking at some kind of recognition of a Palestinian state now. Lord Cameron, just a couple of days ago, Mm -hmm. uh, strongly hinting that with strong caveats that Britain might finally be thinking about recognizing a Palestinian state, something that British diplomats have held. They say they've always held it in reserve. They never wanted to say they were doing it until it was the right moment Mm. when you would get the maximum possible value or bang for your diplomatic buck and it would ensure a a permanent peaceful solution to the conflict. How's that gone down in Israel? Mm. Well, that definitely strikes me as very unilateral. Again, the Israeli society and the political class are so traumatized by October 7 right now and so uncompromising that they are struggling to agree to a release of Palestinian prisoners. Creating a Palestinian state definitely sounds something very far from the current agenda. If you look at Israeli history, if you look at Itzhak Rabin bringing about the Oslo Accords, he was able to do that partly because he was quite popular and he used his public mandate, so to speak, to to push that through, even though a large portion of the Israeli society at the time was opposed to the Oslo Accords or um, any rapprochement with Palestinians. We're in a very difficult situation right now because Netanyahu is hugely unpopular across the political spectrum. He doesn't have much of a public mandate to use to push through something that would be, if not unpopular, then controversial might be the word. There was one thing which could be hopeful that I I saw recently. I came across this report in the Mariv newspaper written by a very well-placed local journalist who said that there is a secret plan underway, secret proposal, as he put it, put together by a group of business people close to Netanyahu, who came up with this plan of how things can pan out in Gaza, starting with a short-lived military administration, then handing over to civilian Palestinians, and eventually uh, proceeding to setting up a demilitarized Palestinian state, something like two or four years down the line. Again, it sounds very ambitious compared to everything we're hearing from the political class right now. On the other hand, there might be something about it because it's definitely a a trial balloon on the part of people close to Netanyahu and it allows him to sort of take the temperature in terms of public opinion without being himself associated with that. Again, it could be something like that. At least there would be declared that Israel is moving towards that that plan if it wants to stay in, in good graces with its Western allies. 
But right now, as of 1st of February 2024, there's very little appetite for the Palestinian state in Israel. Obviously, the Israeli government is under great pressure from its allies to come up with an end game to this war that would be acceptable to the United States and Britain. You've just mentioned one plan that's kind of might exist and has been a leak in the press. But what has the Israeli government said publicly? Have they said anything uh, to give us an idea of, of what their end game is? Oh, yeah. Netanyahu has said on several occasions, including quite recently, that he is opposed to the idea of a Palestinian state. He said it loud and clear. President Isaac Herzog, who is technically head of the state, but largely has ceremonial powers, and he's been someone who has been regarded as a more moderate figure. He recently made vague remarks saying that uh, Israel shares the land with Palestinians and they will have to work with Palestinians in some capacity. He didn't use the word state, he didn't use the word country or two-state solution, but at least he put it out there, obviously under Western pressure. But yeah, on the record, I would say for Israeli publics, it's a taboo to talk about a two-state solution for Israeli politicians. Mm, but even taking a two-state solution off the table, I mean, kind of what Gaza is going to look like at the end of this war. Is it a buffer zone? Is it a big wall and it's walled off again? Is it occupied kind of indefinitely? Is, is there any kind of clarity on what that plan is? Again, this is not, especially publicly, it's not been discussed yet. What we've been hearing from Netanyahu and the defense minister is that Israel is going to carry on, that it has a lot to accomplish in uh, Gaza, that it won't rest until it uh, secures the release of all of the hostages and until it decimates Hamas. It's more like what we've been hearing from Israeli officials is what they don't want to see. They don't want to see Hamas in charge of Gaza. They don't want to see Hamas having any military capacity on the ground. But we haven't heard them voicing any outline of what they would like to see. So it's all been about negatives and not affirmatives. This is what it's come down to so far. Thank you, Natalia. Among those Hamas killed and abducted on October 7th were dozens of foreign migrant laborers working on Israeli farms near the Gaza border. Southeast Asia correspondent Sarah Newey has been speaking to Fonsawan Pinakalo, a Thai laborer who survived weeks in Hamas captivity and emerged only to learn that many of his friends had been murdered on the day he was captured. Sarah, tell me about Fonsawan and how did he come to Israel? So Ponsawan was um, one of 31 Thais who were taken hostage when Hamas attacked on October the 7th. He remained in captivity, actually kept completely on his own for 50 days, so seven weeks. Unlike some of the other hostage stories that we've heard, he wasn't in the tunnels. He was in what he thinks was a former school building because there was a timetable on the walls and some stickers of Mickey Mouse and SpongeBob SquarePants and fairies on the wall. He endured some pretty horrific conditions when he was in captivity. He was beaten almost every time his captors came in. He had just one tin of tuna each day to eat and completely in isolation, which I think would have been horrific. The attacks on October 7th really shone a light on the fact that there are 30,000 Thais who actually work in Israel as part of an official agreement um, with the Thai government. Most of them come from poorer regions of Thailand, especially Isan in the northeast, which is where. And he was earning three times more in Israel than he could have earned at home. For some people, that increase was even greater. He'd been there for four and a half years by the time October 7th came around. And 
the first year he found quite tough, but after that he really loved working there. He was earning more money. He went because his cousin, who he described as more like a brother, he was funding his education. His cousin had dreams of becoming a vet and Ponsuan's salary was going towards helping that become a reality. He also was saving money to build a house and also to clear his family's debt. Household debt is a huge problem in Thailand. That's a really common thread through a lot of the hostages and just workers in general who are in Israel. That's why a lot of them were there. So yeah, he was one of those taken hostage on October the 7th. There were 39 Thais also died, 31 were taken hostage, and eight are still left in captivity. Mm-hmm. And just before we get into to his ordeal and what happened on October 7th, it's pretty interesting. Obviously, a big burden on his shoulders, on his remittances. What kind of work was he doing in Israel? What kind of work had he found? Yeah, so he was working as an agricultural labourer. He was actually on a potato farm in a kibbutz called Alamim, which is about three miles from the border with Gaza. His days mostly involved driving a, a tractor around a potato field. There was a really strong community there, so there were about two dozen Thais who were living on the in the same kibbutz as him, who were a really close-knit community, and actually half of them died um, on the attack. It's awful. One of the things that's really stayed with me from spending time at Ponsawan, he found out that his friends died after he came out of captivity. He actually didn't even realise how many others were kept hostage. He didn't really know why he was there. And he was given an A4 printed booklet of photos, and they had either a red frame or a green frame around their pictures, and that's how he found out who had survived and who had died. And he said to him it didn't make sense because there's military conscription in Thailand. He said a lot of people who died had actually been in the military. So for him it was like completely shocking. That was almost the moment when it all felt like a dream, like it hadn't happened. Because how possibly could have these ex-military Thai men have died on that day when he'd survived? Well, nightmare. So he's, he's living on this kibbutz, this potato farm, you said, in southern Israel. Yeah. Just how close was that to the Gaza border? Yeah, so it was less than three miles. I think it was one of the first that was attacked. And actually, in that kibbutz, 19 foreign workers were killed and eight were kidnapped on October the 7th. So he told us quite a lot about that initial attack. Him and his friends hadn't actually really realised the morning when it first started, just how severe the threat was, because they heard gunfire or saw the Iron Dome working regularly. So they actually went up to the roof with a bottle of Thai rice whiskey at 6.30am in the morning to watch and they filmed a load of clips and posted them on Facebook. It was a little bit later when their Israeli supervisor came along and said, guys, this isn't a drill, get into the bunkers. And there followed a very chaotic period of time. And Ponsawan didn't immediately go into the bunker because he was quite nervous about getting trapped there. He saw a Nepali man get shot really badly, tried to help him, was getting medical supplies, then eventually did join his friends in the bunker. And then when it all went quiet a little bit later, they heard some voices outside and they thought it must be Israeli soldiers coming to help. They couldn't hear which language they were speaking. So Ponsawan said, you guys stay here, I'm going to go out and check. And that was when he saw these three fighters who chased him, ended up attacking him with a kitchen knife. He has these huge scar on his arm, deep purple kind of curved scar. He also was attacked on his head. He said it was bleeding so much that he couldn't actually see anymore. And three of his fingers were sliced, but his little finger almost fell off. He wanted to run, but he couldn't. He was too weak to even walk. And that's when he got taken uh, onto a white pickup truck and transported to the border, then put into the footwell of the Sudan and taken across Gaza. And just for the context, so every kind of 
Israeli house community in in that part of the area. They have these safe rooms, no windows, a door you can lock from the inside. These are the places where a lot of people took refuge during the October 7th attacks. And sadly, a lot of people were, were murdered there when Hamas got in. So he's taken across the border. He's thrown in a yeah. pickup truck. He's taken across the border. He's forced into a footwell of a car. And he's taken into Gaza. This is all on, on the morning of October 7th. And, and then what happens to him? And what, what can he remember? Well, when he first got into Gaza, he was actually taken through a hospital which at this point he said he was really not with it. There were just loud voices everywhere. He was disorientated. He was only in and out of hospital in about half an hour and they actually stitched up the massive gash that was on his head. But they didn't stitch his arm or his little finger. He was actually given a medical kit when he got to the room that he was kept in. It was left on the floor as, as he was sleeping and he woke up and he did that himself, stitched his finger and his arm. This is someone who hasn't got first aid training. It's like insane. Actually, when he was telling us this, you can imagine our faces are like dropping, but he is so matter of fact the whole way through the interview. We were sat there for more than four hours and he just recounted these details very factually. So he was taken then through this hospital, whisked out quickly and taken to an empty room, which he thinks was a, a former school classroom. It was about six by seven meters, but he was actually shackled to the wall. The chain was only about a meter long. So he was basically on the mattress and there was a bucket nearby where he could go and do his business that was never emptied. Each day he was given just one tin of tuna to eat. To occupy his mind, he pretended his shoe to start with was a toy car. And actually one of the few moments I think of humanity that he experienced, and this is also why he thinks it was a former school, one of the guards who had stood outside his room, they weren't in the room with him, gave founder a toy tractor that he could play with. He also turned the tuna tins that he was eating into origami boats and birds. And when they saw that, they also gave him some more paper. Basically, there were three guards who were guarding him and they were all quite cruel. When they came in, they shone a torch in his face or they covered their faces so that he couldn't see them. They regularly beat and kicked him. But there was this one guy who had a softer side. He could ask basic questions in English. Japan Swan would say, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I want to go home. He didn't really have big conversations. But a couple of occasions, this guy gave him some scrap bread rolls that were left over. Uh, but other than that, he really was on his own 50 days. He moved once in the middle because he woke up in the middle of the night on October the 30th. The whole time there's gunpowder and smoke wafting into the room. He can hear all the bombs going off around him. The room he was in was actually bombed. He's shocked that he survived. He was curled up kind of next to the wall of his mattress and he woke up to the glass and shrapnel kind of flowing all over him. They moved him to a room about 30 steps away where he actually saw a mobile phone and that's how he knows what the date was, which they obviously swiftly took away. This next room was a nicer room. There were curtains, but the chain was shorter, only about 40 centimetres. And that's where he was for the next month, basically. He was released finally at the end of November. He said he kind of got through it by meditating, by praying, by doing sit-ups, by playing to try and keep his mind alert. The only time he said he got really upset was when he thought of this cousin that I mentioned earlier, who's education he was funding they're really close and actually again when he talked about his cousin that was the only time that he broke down during the interview 
which was his first time really recounting these details. He hasn't even told his family what really happened. When he came out and spoke to his family for the first time, he just pretended that he'd been on a work trip and his phone was broken because the thought of them knowing what had happened to him was almost just as painful. So he's only really recently started talking about it. He's kind of buried a lot of this stuff quite deep. He was obviously fed quite badly neglected quite badly how else did they treat him was he tortured was he abused or what did he say about how the guards treated him he didn't want to go into specifics of what they did he'd been told by Israel and Thailand that if he spoke too openly about it it could be bad for the hostages who are still there so there are eight Thai and many more Israelis still in captivity so he stressed that he wasn't sexually abused he said that he was beaten and kicked a lot but he wouldn't be drawn on any more details. He felt it was important to him not to say anything more. Obviously, that suggests that something more did happen, but I wouldn't want to speculate on exactly what that was. Understandable. And could you talk us through then the moment of release? Often when we hear these stories about people who've been taken hostage or, or, or held as a prisoners of war, the release comes very suddenly without you really understanding what's going on. Can you tell me what happened to him? How did he make his way to freedom? Yeah, it was exactly that. Just some other guards turned up. He knows these were Hamas guards because of the uniform that they were wearing. And they just kind of took him away. They didn't even say you're being freed or anything like that. It was only when he was thrown into a van with other Thai hostages whom he hadn't even realised were being kept. And one of them said, we're going home. And he was like, what? I don't believe you. How are we going home? He said he really didn't see it coming and had no idea what was happening. It was only really when... They got across the border, so they crossed um, into Egypt and then straight back into Israel and got a military helicopter to uh, a medical facility on an Israeli military base. He said it was only really then that it sunk in. But then his moment of relief is punctured by this A4 booklet with these photos of his friends, half of whom the border is green, they survived, half of whom the border on their pictures is red, and that's how he found out that Basically, half of the two dozen people who were on the kibbutz he worked at had not made it on October the 7th. It's a horrendous ordeal for anybody to get through. I mean, how is he doing? And what did he say about his reflections on his experience? Um, how is he doing? Hard to say. He was very composed. I was quite surprised by how composed he was. And he hasn't spoken to that many people about it. But he said to me, which really shocked me considering everything that he's been through that he actually wants to go back to Israel and for him that would be the only place that he can really heal so we've already heard quite a few reports of the Thai government repatriated about eight and a half thousand workers reports amounting of people going back mainly for financial reasons but for Ponsawan it's not about the money he said that he doesn't think the war's going to end soon he's not scared he has his wounds but if he stays in Thailand, he's escaping the problem. He thinks he needs to go back to heal. His plan is to go back. Does anybody know anything about why Hamas grabbed so many foreign workers? Was there method it, here? Yeah, it's a really good question that I haven't really seen answered. Certainly when the Thai government were negotiating for the release, and it's worth pointing out that the release of the Thai hostages wasn't linked to the deal between Israel and Gaza. It's a separate deal that lots of countries were helping Thailand reach, including Malaysia. Um, and certainly the foreign minister, whenever he's spoken publicly about this, has stressed that in these negotiations, 
they made it very clear that these people have nothing to do with this conflict. Like they are innocent parties. We need to let them go. I was at the airport when the hostages got back in late November. And again, that was kind of very much the message that the government was stressing during the press conference there. I don't think anyone really knows why these time workers were taken. And certainly that has been a big part of the negotiating strategy for the Thai government to get them back. It'd be quite interesting also to get your take on the Thai attitude to the conflict. We know in Britain mm. it's, a, it's very divisive. It feeds into our culture war. If you're on the right, Israelis are the victims. If you're on the left, the Palestinians are the victims. Does the Thai government take a particular position on this conflict? Is, is it something that's talked about uh, amongst the public? Is it, is it a hot topic or is it just something over there? It's definitely discussed, but it is something that's over there. Thailand has been very keen to stress that it's neutral during this, which is a bit similar to their take on Russia-Ukraine, to be honest. Um, They've stressed that they've got partnerships with both sides. It's a bit contrary to other countries in the region, like the Philippines or Malaysia, have very strongly been on the side of the Palestinians, largely because there's a shared religion, common religion there. And that's why they made quite a big deal of the fact that it was negotiators from the South. Actually, Thailand South itself is a bit of a disputed place and there's been an ongoing small conflict there for a long time, largely because of religion. So it was quite interesting that they fed into part of these negotiations to get the Thai workers out. They said that they went to Tehran and they prayed with members of Hamas and that was part of the discussions and that was really talked about when they were first released on the 24th of November, the first group, and then there was a second group released a few days later. Do I think it's been hotly discussed around among my Thai friends? Yes and no. There's been a lot going on in Thai politics at the moment, so I'd say people have been following that more closely, especially in the last few weeks. The party who won the election, a progressive party, has been up in court over various different charges. So that's been dominating the news agenda recently. It's not like it's being ignored, but it's definitely not front page news in the same way that it is in the UK. Has this episode opened up any conversations about the status of Thai workers in Israel um, and their rights? A little bit, but really not as much as we've seen in other countries. I think it's more shone a light on the lack of economic opportunities in some communities in Thailand just because the amount of more money, up to six times their salaries that people can earn in Israel compared to what people can earn in Isan, which is a huge region in northeastern Thailand where poverty rates are really high, household debt rates are really high. I've seen a lot more discussion of that than I've seen of the actual conditions that Thai workers were living in. And I did ask Ponsaman about this, and he seemed very happy with the conditions that he was working in at the time. He said he was paid well, paid on time, um, given housing, given food. And I suspect that also feeds into him wanting to go back. He really enjoyed being there. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. The United Nations this week said that nearly 8 million people have been forced from their homes in Sudan since a civil war broke out there nine months ago. David Knoll spoke to Alex DeWool, executive director of the World Peace Foundation and author of the book Sudan's Unfinished Democracy about the prospects for peace or lack thereof. 
Professor Dewal, thank you so much for your time. Could you start just by giving our listeners a an overview of the current situation in Sudan and tell us how we got here? So in terms of sheer numbers, Sudan is the largest humanitarian crisis that we are facing today. Um, Sudan has a population of about 45 million people. More than half of those are in need of emergency food assistance. Um, More than 6 million people are internally displaced. One and a half million people are refugees. Some 10,000 people or so have have, have died in a war that broke out um, some nine months ago. And this is a war that is actually causing the collapse of the state. This is this is not a war that is easily uh, soluble by a, a ceasefire and a, and and a peace process where where after things could could get back to normal. The uh, the capital city Khartoum has largely been ransacked. Its major institutions have been um, destroyed, burned, uh, and looted. And the war is actually bringing in, in one way or another, every single one of Sudan's neighbors. Um, and it, it is a strategic location. It's on the, the Red Sea, just um, close to where the, the US and the UK have their battleships bombarding the Houthis in Yemen. And actually, the one of the effects of the war is that the Red Sea is Closed and Port Sudan, which is the sole entry point for almost all of the country's humanitarian aid, is de facto now closed for for, um, for assistance. So, it, Sudan has the potential of becoming the epicenter of of a much bigger and, and wider conflict. Could you introduce our listeners then to some of the different factions, the different sides in this conflict? Who should we be aware of? So um, in 2019, there was a beautiful civic uprising, a non set of nonviolent protests of men and many women against the longstanding military government of President Omar al-Bashir, who was notorious for being an autocratic kleptocrat who'd fought wars in different parts of the country in southern Sudan, which had taken the chance and seceded, and in Darfur, which didn't have the option of seceding, um, but which was ravaged. And Bashir was overthrown. And what what followed was a, a transitional period supposedly to usher in a democratic uh, government. But the cohabitation between the civilians and the soldiers who had who had overthrown Bashir was a very uneasy one, and the the military retained control over obviously their own forces, um, but also key sectors of the economy and wanted to essentially retain control over the political direction of Sudan. And the two key generals, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, head of the army, and General Muhammad Hamdan Dagalo, known as Hemeti, which is because he looks youth, youthful. Hemeti is what a, a mother calls her little Muhammad, her little boy Muhammad. And, and Hemeti was, the, and still is, the head of a paramilitary force called the Rapid Support Forces that had been used as a sort of 
irregular but very ruthless and effective counterinsurgency force um, by by uh, the overthrown president Bashir. These two had a, a, a rivalrous and rather quarrelsome cohabitation. They overthrew the, the civilian government in October of 2021, but they couldn't agree on who would really be running the country. And they fell out in April of uh, last year when Hemeti's forces, which are smaller, less well-equipped, but um, very battle-hardened, very capable, trying to launch a coup against the the government, uh, led by uh, General Burhan. It didn't succeed, but the fighting destroyed much of the capital and plunged the entire country into uh, this protracted civil war. There are quite a number of other factions involved, but really, essentially, it it, it is a two-party struggle between these two generals. And in your view, and maybe also importantly, in the view of the sort of Sudanese civilians in, in this as well, where, where do you see, where does legitimacy lie, sort of political, political legitimacy? Is it with, with either of these, these groups or, or none? I think it lies with neither. So the army generally has support, especially among the, the residents of Khartoum and the central parts of Sudan, as sort of representing the nation as a whole. But the army's is is a quarrelsome, uh, f- you know, deeply divided, uh, factionalized group, and a very powerful group within the army are the Islamist securocrats, who who ha- had a lot of power under the previous regime of Omar al Bashir, and they are notorious for for their ruthlessness in cracking down on on civilian dissent and have been doing that in the areas they control. They also have links to um, Islamist-leaning governments in Qatar and Turkey, and they've been getting arms from Iran, which is not making them at all popular in, in, in the Western world. But the, the key feature of their war fighting is how ineffective it has been. Even though they are very well equipped, um, and occasionally they've been able to call on Egyptian airstrikes, they haven't been uh, effective at fighting. On the other side, the the RSF is the uh, inheritor of the, the notorious Janjaweed militia. Now, the Janjaweed are drawn from Arabic-speaking nomadic tribes of Western Sudan and Chad, and they were mobilized as a sort of irregular counterinsurgency um, to fight against the rebellion in Darfur in 2003. And they committed crimes that were described by the US State Department and others as genocidal. And that war was never properly resolved. And the uh, the, the Janjaweed were um, upgraded into an official paramilitary under direct presidential control 10 years ago under their very uh, effective, capable commander, General uh, it, we call him general, but he actually has no formal military training. He was trained in the field, General Hemeti, who was both a commercial operator. He has a he and his family run a series of companies, and their biggest business is in gold. But and also a a, a military operator, using um, land cruisers, using lighter weapons, uh, but very mobile and, and very well coordinated. And he has close relationships with the Wagner Group, 
Um, he has a partnership with them. In fact, Hermeti happened to be in, in Moscow signing agreements on the very day that Russia um, launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine a couple of years ago. And they are particularly interested in partnering on gold, gold that they export both to the, 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 the UAE and to, um, to Moscow. And the, the UAE, Abu Dhabi, has been the main arms supplier to, to, um, to Hameti and, and the RSF. And the RSF has generally been on the offensive. Now, while Hameti, um, his language is one of supporting democracy and human rights and so on, the behavior of his troops tells you something quite different. So in the, the westernmost part of Darfur, um, the city of El Janaina and surrounding areas, they've committed massacres that are candidly genocidal. They share on their own social media videos of brutalities, killings, rapes that you, you, you feel sick even in watching them for the first few seconds. Um, and what is even more disturbing than the, the graphic content is the sort of the whoops of celebration of the militiamen as they you know, cut the throats of, of, of their victims, as they rape them in public and, 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 and so on. Um, elsewhere in Sudan, they have perhaps been, been less flagrantly genocidal, but their modus operandi is looting. They they basically pillage every city that they um, that they overrun. Um, they do in, engage in indiscriminate killing, rape, etc. But um, and, and and they treat civilians appallingly. But pillage is their sort of signature. And what will happen when they run out of cities to pillage? Who knows? May I? <clears throat> excuse me. May I ask what seems like a a slightly simple question, but why why is why is it so violent? What makes these groups commit such appalling acts? It's um, it's anyone's guess why um, why it it is violent and, and and lawless. And I'm guessing that the the most likely explanation is decades of impunity. They have been allowed to get away with this. Some twenty years ago, actually, I, I wrote an article about. Um, Darfur, and I describe this as genocide by force of habit, that the the war zones in Sudan, first of all in southern Sudan, then in Darfur, were ethics-free zones where the government just told its commanders and its militiamen, go, don't report back, do what you want. And 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 they have become habituated to this, um, this Thank atrocity. Thank you. You've brought us up to date, I think, to, to now. So could you tell us what the state of the capital, what is the state of the capital, Khartoum? And where is the current fighting? Where are the front lines, if, if, if we can even describe them as such? So essentially everywhere um, west of the uh, River Nile, that's two thirds of the territory and, and perhaps half of the country in terms of population, is controlled by... The, the RSF, with a couple of exceptions, the city of El Fasha, in the, the capital of, of, of Darfur, is controlled by uh, former Darfur rebels who 
who are opposed to the RSF and, and the military are there too. And the state of southern Kordofan adjoining South Sudan is controlled by another group that is close to the South Sudanese. But the RSF is dominant there. East of the Nile is mostly controlled by the, the Sudan army and, and, and associated groups. The capital Khartoum is divided. Um, there are still, um, most of it territorially is controlled by the RSF, but there's still some major parts controlled by um, the government or, or the, the Sudan army, which has moved its headquarters, its temporary capital to Port Sudan on the, on the Red Sea. So the, the city is, 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 is a ruin, essentially. Now, about a month ago, six weeks ago, the RSF launched a surprise attack south of the capital to a place called Wad Medini, which is very significant because it is in the sort of the heartland of Sudan's food producing region and an area that was, the, the, the people there are solidly pro army pro so-called government and hostile to the, the RSF. Um, and most of the people who had been driven out from Khartoum, who'd not been able to escape the country, were in Wad Benedict. And to the surprise of many, the army failed to defend Wad Medini effectively. It essentially capitulated. And the RSF ran it, overran it, and it's behaved very badly there and has been looting it and rapes and, and, and killings and, and so on. And the army has vowed to retake it. Now, when um, the Wad Medini was overrun, it looked as though General Hemeti and his forces were on the point of, of winning. Um, but the General Burhan has been mobilizing a lot of external support from um, from Egypt, from, from Turkey, and, and as I mentioned, from Iran, and is promising a major counteroffensive. So the, uh, the war is set to, to intensify in the short term. Professor, you've touched on it in your previous answers, but could you give us your sense of, of this conflict, this civil war in, in, in the region? Um, what are different powers trying to do to support or to end the fighting? And why hasn't it been effective so far? Well, when the war broke out um, nine months ago, I think it would be fair to say that different key regional actors had their favourites. So uh, uh, President of the UAE, Mohammed bin Zayed, lent towards Hemeti, um, uh, the President of Egypt, uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, lent very strongly towards uh, al-Burhan. Others lent one way or the other, but everyone essentially agreed a war is going to be a disaster. And you know, we may prefer one candidate or the other, but let's contain the war. The diplomatic opportunity for getting that consensus and containing the war was missed. There was a, a joint US-Saudi attempt um, there were talks held in, in, in the Saudi city of Jeddah, just across the Red Sea, which it didn't achieve anything. And we can perhaps talk about the, the, the failures of diplomacy in a moment. But as the war dragged on, the external players got more and more involved. And the UAE in particular doubled down. So the, the Emirates um, set up an air bridge um, it denies it, but the evidence is overwhelming. An air bridge of, of military 
support to to the RSF through chat and they provide the Emirates provided financial and military assistance to Chad. So Chad is now sort of win- within the Emirati orbit. And the Emirates also backed very strongly with a lot of money and arms, the government of Ethiopia, of Abiy Ahmed, who has been at war in, in Tigray, um, in, the, in the north of his country. He made a peace deal there. He's at war in Amhara. He's at war in Oromo. And most recently, um, on January the 1st this year, he proposed um, taking over part of, of uh, Somalia, the, the part of the self-declared Republic of Somaliland on the Gulf of Aden, invoking a very strong reaction from Somalia. So there's a possibility of a regional war there as well. And this this links up with Sudan because the UAE is trying to get a sort of constellation of, of satellites or proxy players um, throughout the Red Sea, Gulf of Aden, and Horn of Africa. And if um, Hameti were to win and become the leader of Sudan, then the, the Emirates would have Ethiopia, Sudan, Chad, and possibly Somaliland in their pocket. Now, what this has done is it's, it's conjured into existence a counter-alliance um, uh, orchestrated by Egypt. So Egypt has got on its side... Um, the uh, uh, Eritrea, which used to be allied to Ethiopia and has now switched, um, General Burhan, South Sudan, uh, Somalia, and also Djibouti, the small enclave of, of, of Djibouti, which is sort of trying to stay out of it because it depends on, on um, the transport corridor with, with Ethiopia. So it's set for a sort of regional confrontation. And I think this confrontation will be resolved if it is to be resolved, by Cairo talking to Abu Dhabi. And it's possible that Saudi Arabia may, may be the, the convener of this. But at the moment, there's no sign that they are coming to, to an agreement and all these conflicts are actually escalating. Where, <clears throat> I'm so sorry. <clears throat> Where does the West stand in all this? And do you think it's been doing enough? Well, the United States made the the error um, of right at the beginning of taking the line this is a, a conflict that can be resolved by African bureaucrats oh, sorry the United States took the approach which in my view was an error right at the beginning that this conflict should be addressed by the State Department Africa Bureau. So in the overall standing within the US government and in the region. These are relatively junior players. The, the US, Secret- the US um, Assistant Secretary of State for Africa, Molly Fee, if she goes to Abu Dhabi or Riyadh or Cairo, she doesn't really have the weight to, to influence those, those actors. And so the, the, the peace talks were um, given essentially to Saudi Arabia as a pill to placate Saudi Arabia because the Biden administration had obviously fallen out with Saudi Arabia at the beginning of the administration and they wanted to essentially send the signal to the Saudis, you know, we recognize your your leadership. The Saudis were not sufficiently invested in solving this problem. Um, and, and, and the US was, ha, has not taken it to the highest level. 
Um, and there have been other initiatives. There's a, a, an initiative by neighboring East African countries led by Kenya, which is not really gaining much traction. And the reason for that is that um, uh, General Burhan um, wants to even the score. He wants to, uh, on the battlefield, he doesn't want to negotiate from his current position of weakness. And also the Egyptians are, are very suspicious um, of, of, of Kenya having a, a leading role. They haven't, well, the last time Kenya led a Sudan peace process, which was some 20, 25 years ago, the outcome was the separation of South Sudan as an independent state and Egypt was dead against that, doesn't want something similar to happen again. So um, Western countries, especially the US, have really been ignoring this. The UK, frankly, um, has, has, has also not been doing very much. It has quite good analysis, but it really doesn't have much weight. You mentioned South Sudan there. How does the conflicts and the violence in Sudan impact on its southerly neighbour? Well, all the neighbours are being destabilised by this in one way or another. So South Sudan is being uh, affected. There are um, there were many South Sudanese refugees in northern Sudan, and they obviously find it very difficult to stay there. They're, they are fleeing back. South Sudan is highly dependent on oil exports and that all those oil exports go through a pipeline that goes through northern Sudan to Port Sudan. Up to now, that pipeline has not been interrupted, but it's extremely vulnerable. And um, South Sudan depends a lot on its other regular trading relations with northern Sudan. So it's, it's very bad news for South Sudan. Um, other neighbours, too, are being, uh, being destabilised. Chad is in a very precarious position because although Chad has, for financial reasons, aligned itself with the RSF, the ethnic makeup of the Chadian military leadership is mainly ethnic Zagawa. And the ethnic Zagawa in Darfur, their, their kinsmen, are dead opposed to the RSF. They are fighting on the other side. Libya is getting drawn in because both sides... Um, in, from Darfur, the Darfur former rebels and the RSF have mercenary forces in Libya. They also both have mercenary forces in Central African Republic. In both those cases, they are partnering with the Russian Wagner Group. Um, Cairo is being destabilized because millions of refugees have already fled to, to Egypt. Egypt already has major humanitarian problems on its borders, most particularly, obviously, with Gaza. And the idea of a couple of million Sudanese refugees is not welcome. And Ethiopia and Eritrea are also getting dragged in as part of the, the, the complex uh, alliance, militarized alliance building and arms race that characterizes the whole of the Red Sea. Do you see any green shoots there? Any good news for listeners that, when you when you think about it, thinks, oh, you know, that maybe they could build on this or or something like that? Well, I just got one piece of data today, which is that there's an emergency appeal out from the the UN, mainly the World Food Programme, for uh, feeding Sudan, and that appeal for 2024 which was made some months ago, 3% of it has been funded. Uh, and I think that's really quite shocking. Um, the, the green shoots that I see are on the ground. Um, the civilians um, 
local people have mobilized very effective uh, local, they call them emergency rooms that do local assistance. And there are means of directly getting assistance to those, um, cash assistance most notably. Um, there is a, a consensus among uh, the African countries that uh, neither of the two military leaders are acceptable and that any process, any peace process needs to bring about a, a civilian government. And I think that is backed by uh, uh, Western countries. Whether or not the, the Arab neighbors believe that, I don't know, and I suspect not. Um, it's, it, it's, it's a crisis that where the, the, you know, the lesson is that a little bit of prevention would have been extraordinarily cost-effective. And even now, um, uh, preventing things getting worse is, would be effective. What's the, the worst case scenario then, in your view? Um, the most likely scenario is, is pretty bad, which is a continuing slide into a deepening humanitarian crisis with huge numbers of refugees fleeing um, to uh, all neighboring countries, many of them seeking to cross the Mediterranean, come to Europe, come to the UK, and so on. Um, and, and a country that is essentially ungovernable, that like Somalia will take many years and a lot of effort to to, to rebuild. Can I ask just a, one final question, just to help our, our listeners sort of maybe colour in some of the knowledge we don't have. You, you mentioned one of your answers, some of the ethnic um, tensions and divides. Could you just sketch out for us um, what, the, what the important ethnic, maybe religious um, differences between different communities in, in Sudan are and, and why they're important in, in, this, in this conflict? Sudan, um, since the separation of the South, is overwhelmingly a, a Muslim country. There are Christians, especially in, in, in southern Kordofan and southern Blue Nile, but they are not a, a major factor in this. Um, the Islamists who held power for 30 years are, are a minority. Those who want a politically you know, Islamic state are, are, are really in the minority. There are quite important ethnic divides, uh, especially in Darfur, the huge western region that was ravaged by war 20 years ago. And, and that's where we see the most serious ethnic violence. But the, the, the big divide that we see in, in Khartoum and around the Nile is between the, the RSF fighters who are identified as Bedouin Arabs, that is nomadic um, rather, uh, the, the stereotype is that they are semi-literate or illiterate um, hicks from the sticks with gold in their pockets who are very uncivilized, um, which is perhaps unfair. But nonetheless, there is a divide between those coming from that Bedouin tradition and those who are from the, the settled urban communities of, of central Sudan. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph. Or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. 
If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. Battle Lines is produced by David Dargahi, and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles. <laughs>